0: How many of you guys have never heard a talk like this on the subject of hell? I guess maybe I should ask, how many of you have heard a really solid talk on hell? Not that this is something that we love to talk about, because it's not our favorite topic, and we'll get into that more later. But my hope is not just to, like, scare everybody and get everybody all freaked out and everything and talk about just this raging, awful place. My hope is really just to get into Scripture and see what Scripture really says. Because if you're like me, you're probably hearing all sorts of friends, family, Christians, non-Christians, everybody giving different perspectives on what they think the Bible says about hell. And what i found is, is most often, those people don't really have a clue themselves. Maybe they heard somebody's opinion, or maybe they have some ideas that they've worked up in their own mind about what they think about hell, but it really doesn't go back to Scripture. And so tonight I just want to go to Scripture, and with that in mind, we're going to use a lot of Scripture So I hope that doesn't bore you to tears. You don't have to write down every single reference. You don't have to remember every reference. These notes, video, mp3, it's all going to be online, so you can go back and get these exact notes later and check it all out. So I think if you're taking notes tonight, take notes on what hits you. I wouldn't say just take notes on everything, because you probably won't keep up. I'm going to go pretty fast through a lot of different verses. We'll try and keep it interesting. But take notes on what really hits you. So if there's a point that comes across and it, and it really makes a lot of sense, take notes on that. And again, you guys, this is you and God, right? This is part of our communication with God. And so I'm hoping that it's not me coming across to you today or tonight. And partly when you use a lot of scripture, you're, you're guaranteed to actually get God's words across. So that's my hope, is that you'd hear what God has to say tonight. So take notes on what he's telling you as we talk. So I'm going to just pray as we get started, and then we're going to get right into it. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all the fun that we had today, God. We thank you that we get to be at this awesome retreat. We thank you that you're working in each of our hearts. I thank you for everything Aaron shared this morning about heaven, and gosh, there's so much to look forward to. God, I'm so excited for the day that each one of us will stand before you, and we'll see you face-to-face, God, and that we'll spend every single day for the rest of eternity with you. Jesus, 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 that is going to be so exciting. God, I pray with that in mind that we wouldn't lose the life that you've called us to live on this planet, that we wouldn't live for ourselves. God, I pray that we would love you and that we'd look forward to that day enough, Lord, God, to live this life for you. Jesus, speak to us tonight. God, use me, not because I'm anything special, God, but because this is your word, right from your word. God, just speak what you desire for each of us to know. We love you, Jesus. And God, as we talk about this terrible concept of hell, I thank you that you have made a way for each of us to have a relationship with you Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, knowing, Lord God, that I'm as evil as anybody that's ever walked this planet, and that I need your mercy more than anyone, God, and that you, out of your love and compassion, God, save me. God, I thank you so much for that. Don't ever let me lose sight of the amazing thing that it is to have a relationship with you so we love you jesus speak to us tonight amen Amen. all right so bob marley i think it is said we are not spiritual or we are not physical beings having a spiritual experience you guys seen the bumper sticker but spiritual beings having a physical experience right i think it was him i'm not sure but that's really true and whenever we think about eternity i'm always reminded of that quote it's pretty interesting. But we're each spiritual beings that are designed and created to live for eternity, not just for this life. And someday we're all going to stand before God, and there's going to be a judgment based on a few different things, and we'll talk about those today. This morning, I hope you were encouraged by Aaron's talk. How many of you guys thought that was really awesome? We should give her a hand right now. I think, I think that was so good. I here right now. I think it was so good to see what the Bible really says about heaven, because I had a lot of misconceptions, and it's kind of—it's got me so excited just to think about what heaven's going to be all about. With that in mind, I have equally, if not more, misconceptions about hell. And as I really looked through Scripture, I had a book that I wanted to read to get ready for this talk. And I only made it a couple pages in, because there—there there was all this Scripture to review. But my perspective has been kind of honed and clarified as I got into Scripture, because, Christ, because Scripture is so clear on this topic. Anyway, fewer and fewer Christians believe in a real hell. That is true. I have tons of friends, I've talked to them even in the last couple weeks, that do not believe hell is real. Christian friends, even, that don't believe hell is real. And there are some reasons for that that we'll mention in a minute. Uh, last year, USA Today did a big poll among Americans in general, not just Christians, and found that 41% of Americans do not believe in hell. So. Uh, about 60% do, 59% do, but 41% do not believe hell exists. And I think it was interesting, I think they said something like 1% think that they that they are in danger of going to hell. So even the people that do believe hell exists uh, never think they would end up there. It's always somebody else, right? Maybe Hitler. You guys have probably heard that, right? Well, Hebrews 6, 1-2 says this is an elementary teaching and that we should move on from this type of teaching. And when I read that verse, it convicted me because I felt like this elementary teaching is one I don't have down all that well. And here's kind of how the Bible summarizes uh, this elementary teaching about life and death and eternity. It says, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's in Hebrews 9.27. And then it says, we will go to our eternal home. That's in Ecclesiastes 12.5. That place will be either one of eternal punishment or eternal life. Those words came straight from Jesus' mouth in Matthew 25:46. So it's not like one's going to end and the other will go. They're going to be either eternal punishment or eternal life. Uh, the place of eternal punishment will be a place of eternal fire, Matthew 18:8, 8, where people will be tormented with fire and brimstone forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. That's in Revelation 14, 10, and 11. That's pretty hardcore, right? The place of eternal life will be a place of eternal blessings at God's right hand, Psalm 21, six, and eternal pleasures, right, in Psalm 16.11. Eternal blessings and eternal pleasures. That's pretty awesome. That's the place that I hope each one of us are going to be at. And I hope we all spend all of eternity in that place of eternal pleasures and blessings, realizing that this short life that we lived on this planet was lived for a significant reason, and that we made the most of it. And uh, I guess we'll see when we get there, but I hope we do. So, just on a side note, perfection can't include imperfection, right? This is just a logical reality. If this lodge was perfect, and it is not by any means perfect, but if it was, let's say this lodge, everything in it was the description of perfection, and let's say Joseph, being an imperfect person, decided to live here. He decided, this is my home, I'm going to live here with this perfect lodge, Continue being perfect? No. Impossible. By definition, the second Joseph entered this place, it would cease to be perfect, because this imperfect person lived here, right? And so when we think about the existence of God and the existence of a perfect place of living with God in eternity after death, it stands to reason that there would also have to be a place for non-perfect eternal beings. There's no other solution, really. Okay? Even logic dictates that. Dictates that. This earth is a perverted creation, guys, it is, but it is full of God's image and God's characteristics. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without an excuse. What it's saying is all around you, everywhere you look, you sense and you see and you observe God's characteristics. Think about anything pleasurable you notice in this life. Anything pleasurable. And you derive that pleasure somehow from some aspect of God in that. Does that make sense? I love coffee. Something delicious about coffee is some attribute of God's nature, right? Or hot chocolate, or a warm bed to sleep in, or a mountain to climb, or paintball and the adventure that we had today shooting each other in the face, right? All this stuff. You guys, all these different things have some pleasurable aspect because they're derived somehow from God's nature, even though it's in a perverted sense because this world is fallen, but still that's an experience of his good nature. Hell is going to be absent of every one of those characteristics. Logically, if it's absent of him, nothing we found pleasurable in this life, even in its perverted form, will be there in any amount whatsoever. It'll be completely absent of him. It will be a place of the worst pain, loss, agony, suffering, sadness, loneliness, fear, depression, and torment anyone has ever known. That will then be multiplied exponentially for infinity. Does that make sense? Because he will not be there. He will not be present. It will be completely absent of all comfort, reprieve, and anything good that could take the edge off that pain. Because any reprieve and anything good would be him, and he won't be there. Does that make sense? So this is, even from a logical point, we haven't even really gotten to Scripture yet, this is a terrifying concept. And part of it gets better, like when I think about, oh, this is such an, a terrible topic, I just want to make a side note. And we'll get to more of these questions in a minute. But your flesh, if you have, a, how many of you guys have a hard time thinking about people being in hell for eternity? If you don't have a hard time with that, you need to do a heart check, right? I don't. If there's a Christian alive thinking, man, I just can't. You know, can't wait for people to burn in hell. <laughs> if you ever talk to somebody like that, you need to slap them, probably, <laughs> metaphorically and literally. You need to just give them a good whack across the head and say, wait, we don't want anybody to be there. But here's the thing, guys. If you struggle like I do with that issue being a hard thing to swallow, think of this. You, being surrounded by God's goodness, are still getting worse all the time. Your flesh isn't getting any better and I promise you, the older you're you're getting, the flesh is getting equally bad, right? The flesh doesn't get better as you get older. It's just that the Holy Spirit starts to take more and more control of a Christian's life. But your flesh is just as bad as it ever was, and worse because you have a whole lot more experience to base that on. You have a whole lot more idea, many more ideas, many more. You, you're willing to take risks that maybe you wouldn't have taken before. Does that make sense? The flesh gets progressively worse, even in the context of a universe full of God's glory, and even in the context, guys, of the Holy Spirit drawing every one of us and convicting us of sin, and even in the context for Christians of fellowship. Right? Remember it says in Hebrews 3.13, it says that sin will harden us, and it says to not, it says to keep, connecting with each other and experiencing fellowship so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now here's something I just want to paint a picture for for you as we get started. Somebody that exists for eternity in hell, Alcorn put it this way, he said that everything you loved about that person will no longer be there. They'll be the same spirit, but everything you loved about that person had somehow to do with God. It was God's image in them, it was God's characteristics in them, even in a perverted sense and those will all be absent from that individual in hell. And then couple that with the fact that your flesh keeps getting worse, even in a context of so much godliness around us. And imagine what will happen to the flesh in a context where there is zero attribute whatsoever of God. Okay, Hell will be full of people that, over the course of their time there, become more evil than anything you've ever imagined. A picture, basically, of Satan himself. Does that make sense? There will be no attribute of God left in that person. No attribute of his image. Nothing positive to keep them from spiraling down to complete evil. And a lot of times people say, and I mentioned it, man, Hitler and Stalin, they'll be in hell, but probably nobody else, right? And I think when we think of hell, we need to realize Hitler and Stalin are going to be really nice guys compared to people that are in hell for eternity because the flesh will get worse and worse and worse. And it's not hard for me to look at that picture and say, yeah, a just God would have to punish that level of evil. Does that make sense? It's still hard to grapple with the idea of hell, and we'll get to some scripture in a minute. But I just wanted to start by saying, guys, this this makes a whole lot of sense when I start to see it from the perspective that God sees it from in eternity. Okay, so what are some other perspectives that people could, could see hell with? One is that they hate hell. And I asked you guys if you hate hell, and you all said yes. And you're in good company, by the way, because God hates hell. So if you hate hell, you guys are in good company. And, uh, and I hate But anyway, I'm glad you don't love it. If any of you guys would have said, I love hell, it would be a very bad thing, right? Matthew 16:18 puts it this way. And this is Jesus. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter. He's talking to Peter, obviously. And he says, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus is fighting against hell. Do you see that? Jesus isn't just like, ah, I can't wait to kick that guy into hell. Jesus is sitting here saying, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my body. I am in direct opposition to hell. Does that make sense? He is fighting it. Okay? So he he hates hell too. A lot of other Christians do more than just hate hell. And I want to make a sense, too. If you hate hell, it doesn't make it not real. right? There's a lot I hate. I hate babies and children getting leukemia and cancer and these things. A childhood mentor of mine, his 10-year-old daughter got hit by a car and killed a year ago tomorrow. Okay? I hate that, dude. They visited us the year before that. I know this girl. I do not like the fact that she got killed by a car. It doesn't make it not real. It doesn't make it any less real. There's a lot I hate in this world that doesn't make those things not real. So just because we hate something doesn't mean that we can just pretend it's not there. If it's real, it's real. And if it's not real, it's not real. But if it's real, hating it won't change it. Okay, a lot of Christians try to interpret it away. They say, for example, that hell is just temporary. You might have, might have heard this. This kind of common, actually, in Christian circles right now. And there are some examples that they like to use, like in the Old Testament in, in, in uh, Exodus twenty-seven twenty-one. It uses a word for eternal, talking about a lampstand in the temple being eternal, and the temple doesn't exist, and the lampstand doesn't exist. It's nowhere to be found, and it says it'll be lit for you know forever and ever, and it's definitely not lit. It's not even there, and so they take some verses like that and they say, well, the Bible says this thing will go forever, and it obviously didn't go forever. And so maybe the Bible says the same thing about hell in a similar manner, that it won't really go forever. Does that make sense? You guys might hear some reasoning like this. Well, there are some big problems with that. First of all, if if that were true of hell, it would also be true of heaven, not going forever. And I'm pretty sure I want heaven to go forever. I don't want it just to cease to exist. And here's the other thing, talking specifically about the Greek, but about the biblical usage. And in the Greek, it gets a lot more clear than the Old Testament, about eternity. Uh, Greek expert W. R. Inge says no sound Greek scholar can pretend that ionos, which is the Greek word for eternal, means anything less than eternal. He said if you look at the use in scripture of this word, it is eternal always. There might be some instances where it's not used that way. It's very few, far between, and they always apply to very unique circumstances. It's not the overall usage of that word. So the idea that hell is not going to be eternal but it'll just be temporal has some big problems. The other big idea is that it's metaphorical, right? That it's referring to something other than real things. And uh, there are some obvious reasons to think that. James 3.6 says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. And I'm looking around this room and nobody's tongue is on fire, right? Okay, John, your tongue is not (coughs) burning inside your mouth. And it's talking metaphorically about the power of the tongue to cause death and evil and slander and gossip and all this, attributes that are very real of hell but yet it's a metaphorical description of the fire of hell. Does that make sense? So somebody could look at that and say, well, there's not going to be real fire. It's talking metaphorically of agony that would exist for all eternity, but not real physical fire. I'm going to talk in a minute about how Jesus kind of destroyed that argument, but basically any any metaphorical interpretation of hell really just makes it a lot worse. Okay? Think about your little pinky in a candle. That's going to be painful, but think about the anguish of your soul when loved ones die. Think about the anguish that you have when a friend betrays you. Okay, those things are far worse than a physical pain. So even if I took them at a view, I think it would be worse than a strict literal interpretation. So I think there's some of both, right? There are other people that might go to hopeful scriptures. I, I know some people might think that hell uh, will exist until the time when hell is thrown into the lake of fire, and then everybody in hell will cease to exist. There will be an annihilation of sorts of souls. And there are some denominations of Christianity like the Seventh-day Adventists that believe that. And there are some offshoots of Christianity, some cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe that too. But you guys, that's just not the, the, scriptural, um, the scriptural reality here. And we'll see that in a minute, where, where Jesus himself and many other places talk about the eternity of hell. Okay, so here's another verse that's interesting and intriguing. Jesus actually went to hell and preached to people that were in hell uh, while he was in the grave. First Peter 3.18-19 through 19 and 4.6 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. You can also see Ephesians 4.9 for, for another passage that's similar to that, about Jesus preaching to people that had already died and were already waiting in hell, and supposedly in a way where they could make a decision to trust him. Well, it'd be easy for somebody to extrapolate, well, why couldn't he continue to do that now, right? Well, gosh, if that happened to be the case, (laughs) I think every one of us in this room would be extremely joyful about that, right? Nobody would be going, "Ah." nobody would be mad that people went to heaven. But I have to look at the the whole breadth of Scripture and realize that lots of real people are really going to be in hell. So those are all hopes, but I can't base my perspective of life and eternity on a fringe scripture and a fringe interpretation of that scripture. Does that make sense? I have to go to the the meat and potatoes of what scripture says. Uh, a lot of times Christians rationalize, "How could a good God allow it?" I talked about it again at the beginning. If people get progressively worse, and if eternity or if hell is devoid of all of God's attributes, then I think a good God would not be good if he didn't allow eternal punishment for that level of evil, right? It would make Hitler look like a nice guy, right? And it would be continuing to get worse throughout all of eternity. Ten million years from now, those people would be ten million times worse, four more, right? So somehow this idea of hell is not contradictory to the nature of God. It's hard for my mind to grasp that. But it is possible for a good and loving God to send people to hell, or to allow them to be in hell. Does that make sense? Somehow these two things live together, and they don't contradict each other. In my mind, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in reality, it does. And there are a lot of things in reality that don't make sense, right? Some Christians say it's too bad a punishment, right? Gosh, they just sinned a little bit, and they're actually pretty nice people on this earth. How could God send them to hell? You guys have probably heard that. One argument that I heard last week was, well, a murderer... He only gets a hundred years in prison. He's worse than anybody. So how could God punish people worse than that? Well, that's like, a, that's like asking a murderer whether his punishment is just. We're all sinful. So it's kind of weird for me to determine what the correct punishment for my sin is. Only God knows what that correct punishment is, right? We're all kind of on a level playing field, and I can't say, well, God, you'd be unjust to judge me that way. How the heck would I know? <laughs> only God knows what's just, right? I'm sinful just like the next guy. I can't judge what an appropriate punishment for my sin is. Only God can. Uh, A lot of Christians would say this, too. They'd say, gosh, doesn't the whole idea of hell just come from Dante's Invernal? You know, the Bible doesn't really talk about it. I would encourage you to uh, research that a little bit. I think Dante got his ideas from Scripture and wrote uh, an interesting story that used some of those concepts. So go to Scripture. We have to go straight to Scripture and see what it says. So what does the Bible say about hell? Hell was not created for humans, okay, but for Satan and his demons. Isn't that interesting? My gosh, in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So God didn't just sit here one day and go, Man, there are going to be a lot of lost people. I, I think it would be fun to make them burn for eternity. That was not what he thought. He created hell for Satan and his demons, Right? God's desire, knowing that, is that none would perish, 2 Peter 3.9, right? And that all would be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. That's his heart. He doesn't want a single person to go to hell. He wants us all to be saved and none to perish. He promises us that. So who's going to go to hell, right? John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. right? So the wrath of God... The wrath of God on sin itself remains on those who choose not to have his forgiveness of that sin. It's not God's wrath on a person. God's not just mad at a person because he doesn't like him. But his wrath is on that sin. And I thank God I hate sin, don't you? It's the reason we have death on this planet. It's the reason we have pain and suffering and cancers and lying and cheating. It's the reason we have failed marriages. Gosh, I want God to burn the crud out of sin and to destroy it. That same wrath God has on sin remains on anyone who is sinful apart from God's grace, right? Okay, Revelation 20.10, 13-15, and 21.8. It's a couple different parts from a few uh, verses that are in a short passage together. We just can't read the whole passage. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Yes! (laughs) The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not a fun-sounding place. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person, that, by the way, is a Greek word for uh, hell. uh, And each person was uh, judged according to what he had done. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and and abominable, and murderers and immoral persons, and sorcerers and and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is a hardcore passage on the reality that people will spend an eternity there. So what about believers and non-believers, okay? Because we need to get this straight. Have you guys ever feared hell? I remember fearing hell and fearing my own salvation. Oh my gosh, where am I going to go? As a kid, I lived there for far too long. 1 Corinthians 3:12 through 15 talks about the judgment that each one of us is going to face when we die and go to be with God. Okay, if any and it says if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So, literally, when Scripture talks about the judgment for each of us Christians, it's saying, what we did on this planet, after trusting Christ, that will go through fire, so to say. Okay? It's interesting because it talks about, and I'll read the verse in a minute, how sinners, apart from grace, will be judged through eternal fire. It says that Christians that received him will be judged through, as through fire, where whatever was done... For anything other than Christ will be burned away, right? But we will be saved, along with everything we did for Christ. And then even if you look in 2 Peter 3.10, it says this earth is going to be judged through fire, right? It says it will decompose with fervent heat. It's actually prophetic about radioactive decay, but that's neither here nor there. It's a different issue. But it's interesting to see those layers of judgment on this earth and everyone in it. It will be very comprehensive, nothing, and no one will escape, right? And then God will make everything new, including each of us. We'll have a glorified body with Him. Right? So we will stand before God. Whatever we did in this body for ourselves or any other reason other than God, it'll vanish. It'll be burned up with fire. Tomorrow morning, you've got to see what you're going to see. It'll put this in the best perspective that you've ever seen. James 5.3, talking to Christians, says something similar to this. It talks about that fire. It says your gold and silver are corroded. It talks about Christians that hoarded their wealth says, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Okay, it's talking about Christians that didn't use the resources God gave them for his purposes. They just hoarded it to get rich. And it's saying that sin, it will corrode your flesh like fire on the day of judgment. That's pretty hardcore. It's talking about that same fire that we will all be judged through. But the encouraging thing, guys, is you will be saved, right? You will not lose your salvation on that day if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And we'll end with some of that later on tonight. Okay? So what's the judgment for non-believers going to be like? Oh, a side note, too. James three one talks about degrees of judgment for Christians. All right? So there are going to be different degrees of judgment. It specifically says there, we who are teachers will be judged more severely. Right? So the second you start putting yourself in a leadership position or doing a talk like I am tonight, I'm not doing this lightly. I'm doing this with a conviction that I don't want to screw it up. Right, because I know someday I'm going to give an account to God for this. Right, so that's there are going to be different degrees of judgment for Christians. Now, for non-believers, Jude one six through seven says, "In the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, the demons, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day." In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer from punishment of eternal fire. So again, it's saying, guys, like, it's saying clearly people that do not put their trust in Christ will suffer in a punishment of eternal fire on that day of judgment, it says. Okay, Matthew 7, 22 through 23, Jesus himself says he will tell people on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. So Jesus, the loving God, made human, put in human flesh, right, he himself, somehow, in all of his... Love. We'll tell people, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? Depart from me, I never knew you. It's sad, but it's it's true, and it doesn't it doesn't make God's love any less real. On a side note, guys, again in Mark twelve forty, it says there are going to be degrees of judgment and punishment for the lost also. Right? It says that, that people that were hypocrites, right, that talked the talk but didn't walk the walk and didn't really know Jesus, they just tried to pretend like they did. It says they're going to be punished more severely than others, okay? So what about those who haven't heard? You guys ever think that question? What about my ancestors? What about people in other countries where missionaries haven't gone yet? Romans 2, 12 through 16 says first that men will be judged based on what they know. Does that make sense? So God's not going to hold you accountable for what you do not know. Now, beyond that, though, Acts 4, 12 says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So I know that people will be judged based on what they know, but they can't be saved apart from Jesus. So it seems like a little bit of a contradiction there. But it's not necessarily when you look at John 12:32 through 33. Jesus says, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. All men. And, and right after that, John clarifies. He says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was going to die on a cross. A lot of times, pastors say that verse means if we glorify Christ, if we lift Him up, He will draw men to Himself. That's not what it says. It's talking about Him dying on a cross. And if He died on the cross, He would draw all men to Himself. So, question for the day: Did Jesus die on a cross? Yes. Yes. He was lifted up on a cross. So, by His own words, is He going to draw every human alive to Himself? Okay. On a side note, I have a lot of side notes now. I'm going to keep it straight and is concise as I can. I used to pray, God, draw that man to yourself. And then I realized that's a redundant prayer. God is already doing that. So I started praying instead, God, open that person's eyes to see how you're drawing them, right? Because he's doing it. Now here's the thing. What about people 500 years ago in in North America where no missionary had set foot, where nobody heard the gospel? Jesus had died 1,500 years prior to that. So was he lying? Did he still give those people an opportunity? I think that's, I think he he promised that, right? He's not a liar. I can trust him. So the problem for me isn't, what about other people? The problem for me is, what about me, right, and the people around me today? Jesus is going to make a way to reach people for himself. Remember, again, he does not desire that any would be lost, and he wants all, the, to, all to be saved. So the bottom line, I have to trust him with all that stuff, right? And again, he preached to those that were in hell, right? So what about people that lived before him all across this planet? Gosh, I'm sure they got a chance to hear the gospel. Praise God. Praise God. So what are the actual words used in Scripture for hell? There are five predominant words used that are translated as hell. You heard me use one a minute ago, Hades. Uh, In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there were two. It was Sheol and Abaddon. Sheol is used sometimes to refer to the grave. Some Christians that try to talk about a metaphorical view will say, uh, well, when it talks about Sheol, it's just talking about the grave. You guys ever hear that? I used to hear this a lot from people. There are a lot of verses that are real clear that, Sheol is talking simply about the grave. You're going to die, you're going to be buried, and you're going to decompose and rot, and that's the end of it. There are a lot of verses like that. But there are also a lot of verses that describe Sheol as a place of eternal punishment. In Isaiah 33 and, again, in 66, it describes it as a place of eternal and unquenchable fire and burning. Right? Sheol. So even in the Old Testament, this wasn't just a temporary issue, but it was something that the very usage of these words was understood depending on the context, to be eternal punishment. Uh, The Hebrew word for uh, hell is also sometimes translated from uh, abaddon, which was a place of destruction and ruin. In the New Testament, you get Gehenna, which is a predominant usage of the word hell. It's pretty much almost every time you read hell in the New Testament, that's the word that it's using. And that actually came from the name of a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. And this picture gets real graphic. This trash dump was a place of refuse and trash they would burn constantly, right, outside the city. You could see the smoke any time of any day. It was constantly burning to get rid of all the trash. And in that, all the dead animal corpses, the rotting dead animals were thrown there, along with the dead bodies of all the criminals, where they would just burn constantly. Pretty disgusting picture. And that name is how the New Testament chooses to describe hell, or that's the word that it's, that is used for hell. Right, The New Testament also has kind of a New Testament version of the Hebrew Sheol, which can refer to the grave or eternal punishment. And that's Hades. I mentioned it a minute ago. And there's one usage in the New Testament of Tartarou. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Which was kind of like a Greek version of Gehenna. So it was not in Jerusalem, but in the, in the um, Gentile world. So those, those are some of the words that are actually used. And I think it's important to say that, because a lot of times Christians say it's just referring to the grave. And if you look at Scripture, that is not the case. Those words that are used refer to eternal punishment as well, and in very graphic detail, not just a place where bodies decompose in the ground. All right? Now, here's exactly how the Bible describes hell. If you're ever wondering, is it just fire? Like, what is it? Okay, here's exactly how it describes it, and I'll read these references in a minute, but I'm just going to tell you the statement that has all these different verses kind of put together in one statement. The Bible describes hell as a real and eternal place of wrath where people will be tormented day and night forever in gloomy dungeons, where both the body and soul will be judged with blackness, darkness, destruction, torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, anguish, trouble, sorrow, shame, contempt, anger, trouble, distress, continual and unceasing decay, and a raging, consuming, unquenchable, and unending fire. Those adjectives, by the way, are not mine, but they're scriptures, right? It will be everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. That's hardcore. Doesn't sound good. Whether you read that with some metaphorical aspect to it or completely literal, either way, it's really, really bad, and <laughs> nobody should want to go there. Right? I'm gonna read that again. Because we need to get that kind of in our minds, I think, as far as the picture goes, so that we're not so that we're not buying into a lot of what society says. So the Bible describes hell as a real and eternal place of wrath where people will be tormented day and night forever, in gloomy dungeons where both the body and soul will be judged with blackness, darkness, destruction, torment. Remember today in that cave, how dark it was, how black it was? Imagine that for eternity. Eternity. Coupled with anguish and heat and, gosh, it goes on and on. With destruction, and torment, and weeping, and gnashing of teeth, and anguish, and trouble, and sorrow, and shame, and contempt, and anger, and trouble, and distress, and continual and unceasing decay, and a raging, consuming, unquenchable, and unending fire, it will be everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. Literal quote from scripture. Okay, so many of those descriptions, by the way, come straight from Jesus' mouth, too. He was probably the most graphic orator on the subject of hell. His descriptions were... Extremely graphic. Here are some of those descriptions. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in in danger of the fire of hell. Okay? Jesus talking about literal fire. Uh, Do not be afraid, this is Matthew 10.28, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Uh, that's also quoted in Luke 12, 5. Matthew 18, 8-9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. It's also quoted in Matthew 5, 29-30, Mark 9, 43, 45, and 47. Jesus was pretty graphic when he talked about hell. He said in Matthew 23, 33, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Right? Pretty graphic. In Matthew 13, 40-42, he shares a parable where he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, and there were several other parables just like this, talking about weeds and fire and things like that, so will be at the end of the age. All who do evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And that's kind of, we're going to keep going, but why do you think it was so important to Jesus to clarify? Did you guys understand this? Right? He was saying, do you understand how bad this place is going to be? Do you understand real people are going to be there? Do you understand that there will be everlasting fire? Do you understood this? And the people said, yeah, we've understood it. It was probably all too clear to them. But I think Jesus is saying the same thing to each one of us tonight. Do you understand this? You know, Don't let your rationalization or your ideas or your misinterpretations or your personal feelings about this subject lead you wrongly or lead you astray. What he's saying is, I say this place is real, and real people are going to go there. Do you understand this? Yes, they reply. You know? I hate the idea of hell. But I have to reply to Jesus, yeah, I understand what you're talking about, and I trust you on everything else, so I'll trust you here too. Okay, now just a a scripture that kind of illustrates how graphic Jesus talked about hell. Not just to scare everybody, but this is kind of intense. Jesus described hell in in Mark uh, 9.48 as a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. That's interesting. What does it mean that the worm doesn't die, right? Well, here's what it literally means. When you die and you begin to decompose in the ground, and a lot of people think that's the end of things, right? I just cease to exist. Worms eat your dead body, right? Your body decomposes. It's actually a statement about the decomposition of a body. And when Jesus talks about hell, he says, your body will not decompose. It will be preserved in a state of decomposition for all of eternity with unquenchable fire. That's graphic. That's a really graphic interpretation or description of hell straight from the mouth of Jesus. Okay, and Jesus again describes hell as a real place with real people. Uh, Aaron and I talked about it earlier. She actually said this was a parable this morning. And I wanted to clarify, this is not a parable. When Jesus talked about Lazarus and Richmond, he didn't say it was a parable. In Luke 16, 22 through 28, it says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Definitely doesn't sound like, you know, metaphor for, he was really mad his wife left him on this point. I've heard pastors say that. Hell is, you know, the result of your sin on this earth. If you... Cheat on your wife and your family gets messed up, that's your hell. It's hell on earth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a real, literal hell right here, right? Okay, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of judgment. That's what this rich man said. And, and you know, Abraham continues to say, if they didn't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe even this dead man coming back to life to warn them. It goes right back to Scripture, guys. So what's God's heart? mean, hell sounds like it's not going to be fun. I know it's not going to be. It's going to be pretty bad. So what's God's heart? If you're like me, how many of you guys ever heard this? The Bible talks a whole lot more about hell than it does about heaven. Has anybody heard that? I used to hear that all the time. It, all the time. So much that I assumed it was true. The Bible talks more about hell than heaven. That's not the case. Uh, depending on the translation of the word, because sheol and you know some of these words can be translated as either grave or hell in different situations, Uh, So depending on the translation of the words, if you look across all the major translations, heaven is used, on average, 25 times as often as hell. Isn't that cool? So God talks about heaven 25 times as often as he talks about hell, because that's what's on his heart. His heart isn't hell. God hates it just like you guys do. And he's fighting it just like we should be, because he's passionate about heaven. He's passionate about every single person spending eternity with him, So the Bible talks about heaven 25 times as often as it does about hell. And get this, eternal life is used a lot in Scripture. That's not the word heaven. It's a different way of saying that, maybe. Uh, And so is eternal punishment. Eternal punishment is also used. Eternal life is mentioned 22 times in Scripture. And uh, eternal punishment is... No, no, no. Eternal life is used 44 times in Scripture. Eternal punishment twice. Only twice. So again, 22 times as often the Bible talks about eternal life. So you can see, in God's mind, the issue of heaven and eternal life is about 22 to 25 times as big a deal as the issue of hell. Not as big a deal, but I should say more on his heart, right? That people would spend eternity in heaven with him. So the main idea, again, God does not want any to perish, but he wants all to be saved. Okay, now here's Pascal's wager. This is never good evidence solely on its own to put your trust in God. Uh, The atheist will be the first to say, you don't say Pascal's wager. And Pascal put it this way, famous a scientist, famous theologian, philosopher. He said, basically, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in hell, and you're right, I don't lose anything for believing in God and hell. I don't... we both just die and cease to exist. Neither of us would even know who was right. So I lose nothing. But he says, if you don't believe in God, and I do, and we find out I'm right, you just lost everything. (laughs) Because you just made it a risky... Um, decision that ended up in eternal punishment. So you lost everything. That was Pascal's wager. That wouldn't, on its own, be a good reason to start believing in God. So I would tell people, go look at the evidence first. I think it's plenty good for God. Then once you've evaluated all that evidence, that's a pretty convincing reason to go the next step and put my trust in Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? Just want to throw that out there. All humanity stands at a precipice, guys. All humanity stands ready at any instant to fall into eternity. Our lives are so short. I don't know if you guys have had friends die. We have. Young friends at early ages that were not supposed to die have died. Friends with pregnant wives, right? Friends that we all thought would live a lot longer than they did, and they died at a young age. Life is so short. And when you're young, we fail to notice that, how short it is, because we're young. We've never known anything different than being young but it is so short. Guys, by 150,000 people die every single day. We got that 150,000 people. That's two every second. That means during the time that we've been talking tonight, about 4,000 people have died. Many of those going into an eternity very likely without Christ. But there is hope that we'll share in a minute. So what should I do about it? Here's what Jesus says, and you guys might have heard this this morning if you read your quiet time notes. You didn't have you could have done anything you wanted for your quiet time. But some of us read these. Jesus put it this way. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Streams of living water will flow from within him. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness, because you will have the light that leads to life. All who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the darkness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. Anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. How do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Sin is unbelief in me. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My purpose is to give life in all its fullness. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me calling and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal as friends. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Be sure of this. I am with you always. I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. That's straight from Jesus' mouth, about how we should respond to him, knowing the reality of a heaven and a hell. That exists. Right? So, how should I respond if I if I have a relationship with Jesus? How should I respond if I know Him as my Savior? Okay, first of all, fear should not cripple you. First John 4.18 says perfect love drives out or casts out all fear. You do not need to live in fear of hell. And it specifically says that concerning fear of punishment. Okay? Walk in your security. Jesus Himself said, "You have already crossed over from death to life." John 5:24. You already have eternal life. John 10:28. And that life is your relationship with God that started the second you trusted Him. John 17:3. Don't underemphasize or overemphasize hell. As Christians, we need to not be Bible thumping fire and brimstone, right? And on the flip side of the coin, we can't just pretend like it's just not going to happen. We really need to be truthful with it, not over or underemphasizing it. We need to quit sitting around wishing hell didn't exist and start doing something with the short time we have on this planet to make a difference about the reality of hell, right? Jude one twenty one through 23 puts it this way. It says, snatch others from the fire and save them. Isn't that a cool concept? Snatch others from the fire and save them. That's the heart that I hope we would get because that's the heart Jesus already has. Snatch others from the fire and save them. If you hate that hell, if you hate that fire, if you hate that concept, snatch others from the fire and save them. It's such a better response to hating that than just saying, probably isn't true. C.T. Studd put it this way. He said, some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Isn't that cool? Somebody else was talking about a speaker at Night Vision that said, I want to be redirecting traffic. Mm -hmm. in front of the gates of hell, right? So let's do something. Let's snatch people from the fire. This should be a major motivator for sharing the good news, for sharing your faith evangelism. And on a side note, come to cross training. That is what we're studying there, how to share Christ in a natural, easy way with anybody, anytime, anywhere. It'll be really good. It's Monday, 5 at 4 at EBH 55. But basically, guys, hell should be a motivator for sharing my faith, but it shouldn't be the main motivator. The main motivator needs to be my love for Jesus. Right? If you love him, you won't be able to stop talking about him, right? And the issue of hell, guys, I hope for us as Christians, it will focus us. Remember Luke 19.10? Jesus was focused. I came for one purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that nuts? He was focused. He, he had direction. Nothing was going to distract him. I think if we can get a grasp of what eternity is really going to be like, it will focus us just like it focused Jesus on the goal. 2 Corinthians 14 talks about that focus. It says, let us fix our eyes not on what is seen, this world around us, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Leah's going to talk more about that whole idea tomorrow. But we should be focused on making a difference for eternity. So how should you respond to this if you don't yet know Jesus? This, again, should not be the primary reason to trust in Christ right i don't think anybody should put their trust in christ solely because they're scared of hell probably all of you guys know christians like that that pray to prayer as fire insurance and now they're just as you know they're just like anybody else our primary reason for trusting in christ just like for the christian the primary reason for sharing our faith is out of love for god our primary reason for trusting in christ should be the result of romans 2 4 through 5 which says that god's kindness draws us to repentance So if you don't yet know Christ, I would encourage you, think about how he has kindly and gently and lovingly drawn you to himself, and respond to that, right? Knowing that this is also true. We should not ignore the reality of hell if we don't yet have a relationship with Christ. Ignoring the reality of hell, for the non-Christian, Hebrews 10, 26, 27 describes it this way, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Right, so I should not ignore this. It should be my primary reason for trusting Christ, but it should not be something I ignore. You can know for certain today that you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus by putting your trust in Him now. Jesus put it pretty simply. He says He loves you with everlasting love, but each one of us are sinful and separated from Him, both for time and this planet, and also for eternity, if we don't get this sin issue taken care of. Jesus said he came and he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, nailed every sin from your past, your present, and your future to that cross, paid it in full, so that you would not have to stand before God, rejected for eternity, so that you could stand, like I said at the beginning, like Joseph in this house, as a perfect person in a perfect eternity, right? Okay, he paid for it, but now each of us has to make this decision. Will I accept his gift or not? Will I trust him or not? Will I open the door and let him come into my heart or not? And I would encourage you, get this little Knowing God Personally booklet tonight, look through it if you've never made that decision, and take that step. Okay, so that was pretty head, like, I can't even talk. That was a pretty hardcore talk, kind of scary. So I don't want to just end there. I don't want to leave you guys on a downer. I want to end on some good news. How many of you guys want to hear some good news after all that? Ooh, ooh. John, you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Revelation one eighteen. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. Gosh, dude. This is in God's hands, and he is going to conquer, right? He's going to do greater miracles than we can imagine. I don't suspect the majority of humanity will be in hell. Because God loves them, and he does not want that. In fact, he said he's not willing that they would perish. So get this, death is swallowed up in victory. First Corinthians 15, 54, Aaron mentioned that this morning. Let's tell the whole world about the hope that we have in Jesus. Check this out, a lot of people that you expect to see in hell, I'm pretty sure you're going to wake up in heaven and see them in heaven. And go, what in the world, God? How'd you do that? God's going to go, I'm God. <laughs> Aren't you glad it wasn't you? Okay, I want to encourage you with this. Because you probably screwed it up. I want to encourage you with this. We've all heard this passage. When Christians try to say, most everybody's going to go to hell, what's the one verse they use? Why? Oh, why does the gate in the Why does the, the gate in... And... That leads to destruction. destruction. Yeah, okay. Why does <laughs> the road to destruction, right? Why does the road to destruction, and there are a few fine... The narrow road to salvation. We always hear this, right? But I want to encourage you, remember Acts 9? There was was a certain guy, who at the time was named Saul, who was traveling down a very wide road to destruction, actually murdering Christians, persecuting the church. And God miraculously hijacked that, uh, that wide road and knocked him off his horse and gave him a very clear description of how he could follow him instead. And the Apostle Paul became one of the greatest um, evangelists and you know, ministers in the history of this world. Guys, I want to encourage you that I think God's going to hijack a lot of wide roads and knock people off a lot of horses. And I, I'm, i am we're trusting him, right? We're trusting him. But he told me that he's not willing that anyone perish. And he told me that he wants all to be saved. So at what point is he going to stop and say, forget it? I don't want that. He's not. He's doing anything he can, and that's a hopeful note to end on. And I want to I just say, I want to put this in your memory, or in your minds to think about. Ephesians 2:10 through 11 talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Gosh, guys, maybe a lot of those people will do so willingly, a lot more than we naturally think. I always assume they're all going to eventually do it because they have to, you know? And that's going to be the case with some. Real people will go to hell. But I want to encourage you, God is so merciful and graceful and loving that I suspect he's going to hijack a lot of people's roads and a lot of those knees that bow and a lot of those tongues that confess will do so willfully and they'll be with us in heaven for all of eternity. All right? That's something that's joyful and, I'm, and I can't wait to see who the biggest sinner in heaven is, right? I can't wait to see. Well, we're all going to be equally big sinners. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, Joseph says I'm the biggest sinner. I already know. But I can put it this way. I can't wait to get up there and say, Hitler, what? <laughs> right? I'm not saying I condone anything he did or anything like that. You know that. But you know what I mean? Gosh, aren't you guys excited to see what God comes through and does? Okay, that's an exciting note to end on. So let's pray. Let's close it out. I hope that encourages you about this whole issue of hell. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are awesome. Thank you for saving us from a terrible eternity without you in hell. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for our sins, that you rose again conquering death to give us life for all of eternity. Wow. I cannot wait to be with you face-to-face, Jesus. We love you, God. Uh, Bless the rest of our time at this retreat. Gosh, bless Leah as she prepares for tomorrow morning. Pray that you give her the words to speak to each of us. We love you, Jesus. God, help us love you more today and more tomorrow than we ever have before. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Amen.